Do you know what separates a failed business exit from a highly profitable one? Do you want to maximize the value of your business? The Business Exit Stories podcast is the solution. Through a collection of stories told by the business intermediaries who facilitate those transactions, you'll receive the key takeaways from successful and, yes, some not-so-successful business exits. Now is the time to begin to position your business for an exit by implementing key strategies designed to maximize your enterprise value and help you achieve an exceptionally profitable exit. Today we have Carol Shin of the Inbar Group with us. In this episode, Carol talks about a number of transactions that have a little bit of a different twist with them than a traditional interview does. What I would like you to listen for in her interview today is when dealing with a private equity or search fund buyer, some of the things that you need to be aware of when structuring deals with these entities. In a transaction that involved a private equity group, the deal was structured in a way that the seller was very focused on getting his price for his business. In Carol's opinion, this didn't serve him well at all, because sophisticated buyers will pick up on this type of thing and structure a deal to play to the emotional need of a seller, and then build in other terms that may very well take away some of the giveaways they did on the upfront pricing of the business and what they're willing to pay for it. Listen to how this actually happened in the sale of a very successful business in which the buyer got his win on the battle when he got his price, but in the end did not win the war. Carol also shares the details of a transaction that involved a different type of buyer known in the industry as a search fund buyer. Carol will share how these type of search funds are structured and some of the good and bad elements in dealing with this type of buyer. I think if you haven't heard of search funds before, this will be an interesting episode for you to listen to and take notes on. Then Carol shares how a lack of inventory control in selling a business can raise absolute havoc on the sale of a business, as well as how buyers and sellers build trust between one another in another transaction that made for a real sweetheart deal for all parties involved. Anyone looking to sell their business would do well to take notes on these takeaways on all of these transactions that are discussed in this episode today. There are a lot of insightful takeaways that every buyer of a business that is currently involved in selling their business or will at some point in the future be involved in the sale of a business. You should take notes on some of the items in this episode. Enjoy. This is Marvin L. Storm with the Business Exit Stories podcast. Thank you for joining us here today because we're talking to Carol Shin. Carol, would you take a few minutes and introduce yourself and talk a little bit about where you're located and your business? Sure. Thanks, Marvin. Uh, my name is Carol Shin, and I am a business broker with Inbar Group. We are located in three locations, uh, the first one being in New York City, at uh, near Penn Plaza. The second one is in Greenwich, Connecticut. 
And recently, we opened up an office in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. All right. Well, sounds like it's a growing business that you're involved in. And uh, we'd like to talk a little bit about some of those transactions you've been involved with over the years. And uh, why don't we jump right in? And you could just, uh, Carol, talk a little bit about a transaction that had its challenges. And maybe you were able to push it over the closing line and uh, get the transaction completed. Share with us some of the details of a transaction that that had its challenges. Sure. Um, just, I would probably say about four years ago, we um, had a great level of difficulty closing on a uh, furniture component uh, manufacturing business, which later actually turned into a distribution business. But uh, originally, the business was started by the father of the seller. And they were originally manufacturing those components in the United States. But um, right before the sale took place, they converted the manufacturing into distribution by um, manufacturing those components in China. So they would have large container shipments almost every other month coming from China they would keep them as inventory. Did they have their own facility where they kept an inventory? Or did they outsource that? Yes. It was quite a large facility of about 10,000 square feet. And the racks were went up probably three stories and they were filled top to bottom and racks and rows of components. So the father had started the business. So there are probably a lot of inventory that has been accumulated over the years. Correct. The father was actually manufacturing those inventories and components using his own designs long time ago and created very expensive molds, which are very, uh, you know, expensive to create. And they were manufacturing those components in the U.S. utilizing four different locations. And then as he got old, elderly, it just became uh, more of a, um, you know, they started ordering some parts from China. By the time the son took over, they turned the whole business into uh, ordering from China rather than manufacturing. They got rid of all the manufacturing supplies um, and the facilities into one location. So they ended up with that 10,000 square foot space. And they were taking orders online, email, phone calls. They had very long-standing customers, and they were continuing to um, ship them without any disruption, by the way. I'm just trying to visualize what that operation kind of looked like, a long-time, long-standing business with very deep customer relationships and started by the father probably decades ago. And businesses like this grow where they do things on paper and pencil and files and keeping everything in their head. And uh, I, I'm just, you know, making an assumption here that that's kind of how this business grew. And as the son took over, did anything change? Did they step into the modern world and computerize? Not really. You know, the father had, you know, I would say hundreds of thousands of components that uh, were made and then they also had to be assembled into certain parts. So um, if you think about going back probably at least 50 years of the business having started. Five, zero, 50? 50. Yeah, maybe 60 when the, <laughs> when the father started it. Yeah. Uh, you know, he was a young man. He was, uh, I believe, an engineer by trade and 
he started the business from scratch, engineering little components, and then it grew bigger and bigger. And he acquired other factories to help out with the the growth of the business and manufacturing. And um, so, of course, they didn't have computers. When you said there were hundreds of thousands of parts and components, that is literally what was there. Hundreds and hundreds of thousands of individual parts, right? Correct. So, if you can imagine what, you know, the metal parts of any furniture, there's many, many components that go into um, a piece of furniture, into a refrigerator, into a, you know, a metal table, let's say, that hospitals use. It's all those components that you might have a nut and a screw or, or anything like that, but they're also put together in such a fashion that they're specific to an industry or to a furniture item. So there are many, many parts that go into it. And that's what he had, tiny little ones that in a small box might contain 200,000 pieces. Well, sounds like a great business, but a very inventory intensive business that could become a nightmare if it wasn't properly managed. Right. And, and you know, if you go back 50, 60 years ago, there were no computers. Everything was done by hand on a ledger or things of that nature. And um, by the time this turn, it just, it just was, there were a lot of missing pieces that were not converted onto a spreadsheet or software. By the time the son took over, he did the best he could with the, um, the, the components that he had manufactured over in China because of, he was paying for them and there was a trail. But all those older pieces that his father left behind they didn't have any trail. There was no SKUs, no nothing to speak of. So it was very difficult to count all them and and know that they were, you know, they were not redundant or they were obsolete or anything like that. There was no record of it. I would imagine then that there was a huge issue on what was being able to track inventory and revenue tied to those inventory items, as well as what was the obsolescence factor when it came time to sell the business. I, I assume all those issues came up as part of the discussion when the business went to market, right? Sure, yes. Uh, in fact, the inventory value was higher than the business purchase price. So it was very important that um, the inventory was correct. However, you know, it's very difficult on the onset when you're going to sell a business. I'm certainly not going to go count the inventory myself or with the seller because it doesn't matter by the time it sells that inventory will be different anyway so we left it to you know when a buyer presents themselves that that's when it will happen so we did get a buyer who was very interested in the the business he was a cash buyer and uh, when the time came to consider the value of the inventory because there were so many holes in, you know, explaining what, how, you know, how quickly this inventory sold or what was left, how old these inventories were, uh, it created an environment of um, mistrust by the buyer. He didn't understand how um, he was going to value that inventory. So there were many, many instances where um, the deal almost broke because of the unreliability of the information on the inventory, at least three times. So in order for this deal to, to work, I had to sit this, the buyer down 
and I had to set the seller down and I had to get uh, on the phone the person who was actually managing the inventory for the company for the last 25 plus years. And she had no idea that the business was for sale. So that was, it took all day to check off all the questions that he had on certain inventories. And um, because of that, I think that they started, uh, the buyer started trusting the information. However, a lot of what he uh, um, thought that was, you know, missing or it was mispriced, it came out to be correct. So we had to readjust the, the price. It went lower than uh, what we had agreed on. And, but that did allow for all the questions to be answered. And he felt good with that. So we went forward with it after all. But it was a very difficult process. From the way you're describing this transaction, you're talking millions of dollars in inventory items. And that's not insignificant as a percentage of what the business is actually being sold for. That's correct, especially if you're doing a markup of those items by at least two times. So it was it was definitely important for the buyer to to know what he was buying. And none of this was computerized, as I hear you explain this, correct? No. All we had were current invoices of the items that he purchased from China. Before that, there was no related expense or SKUs or record of what was sitting in that 10,000 square foot warehouse. Yeah, just for our audience there, when you use SKUs, that's really stock keeping items, you know, it's just a, a tracking mechanism for what a component actually is. So you were actually able to get this one across the finish line then after all the, the issues, because I can just imagine the nightmare it was for a buyer to get his head around you know, what is he actually going to be writing a check for and what's obsolete and where is revenue coming from in the inventory and how fast is the turnover? I mean, those are huge issues. So what would be the big takeaway on this? As you stand back and look at this transaction, you know, what would be the big takeaway for our audience here? I keep a very good record of your inventory. If that is part of the business that's so important to create your revenue, if you're relying on your inventory, you have to make sure that you have good records of how quickly they sell, what is the turnover, you know, what is the price that you purchased this for, and you have to keep very good records of that, and how many items you have left, how often you have to replace them. They're very important. I, I would agree completely with your statement there of uh, the takeaway on this, and you know, it's just difficult for a buyer to pay full price for anything if you can't provide the data to support what you're asking for and particularly challenging here when nothing was computerized and parts that may be useful and valuable parts go back decades, but you really don't know what's there. And that is a huge challenge. So for those out that are listening in, if your business is really geared toward uh, heavy balance sheet items such as inventory, I think what Carol is suggesting is that make sure that you can support that inventory with data that is real and verifiable. Yes. And what ended up happening was that those items that were not verifiable were deeply discounted and some of them were just thrown in for free in order for the deal to close. So... But I would say the seller was lucky in having a buyer who was very motivated to purchase the business. So that's that definitely um, saved the business in the end. Well, I think a point taken, if there'd have been more data, a lot of additional revenue and proceeds could have been realized in the sale. That's very true. 
Very true. Well, that was a great, great transaction to discuss. Some a real good takeaway there. So why don't we move on to uh, another transaction that may have had a different type of takeaway? Okay. Um, let's see. There was another one that I did about uh, around the same time. I think the furniture component was earlier than this one, but this was also quite a large business and it was a uh, commercial cleaning business that was in the um, uh, the New York City area. They were quite large. Um, all of their leads were inbound. And the way he created those leads were through Google search optimization. And he had a very good marketing team that was able to optimize it so that they always appeared on the first 10 when anybody searched for a commercial cleaning company in that area. So we're talking about a commercial cleaning business here that had millions of dollars in revenue, right? Yes. In all the boroughs, uh, they had um, quite a big staff of cleaners. They, they were one of the largest and they were very efficiently run. But, you know, the expense of um, making sure that they always appeared on the first 10 uh, it was very expensive and you do get uh, stuck with a company who's marketing you that way and making you appear uh, on the first top first page of it, they, their prices started going up. So you have to be very aware of what you're getting yourself into. If you have somebody who's working for you for their optimization, you know, you have to realize that for you to continue to be there, you're kind of stuck with this, this, this company. And it is at their will if they decide to start charging you more on a monthly basis. And that was the biggest expense in his um, profit and loss statement for the operating expenses. It was, it was huge, but he was doing really well because of it. They, they were getting leads every day, all the time. And what type of buyer were you able to surface? I mean, this is a pretty generic type of business, I guess. Did you find a buyer that was in the business or investment group? Or what kind of buyer actually had an interest in the business? Well, because the price was, you know, up there, um, you know, in, in $10 million, uh, it was a buyer who... Um, was looking for a large type of business. And generally, it's not an individual. This was a private equity group. They were looking for a recurring revenue type of a business, and it really fit in their wheelhouse. And they were very excited. So they were very aggressive in um, you know, bringing this deal to a close. So the type of buyers that I got targeted you know, by uh, those types of buyers were private equity groups mostly. And so they came to the table because of the recurring nature of the revenue and the size of the transaction was kind of in their parameters. How was the deal structured? Did it turn out to be highly leveraged or a cash deal or were there holdbacks and earnouts and all the things that private equity buyers like to do? Yes, it was a combination of it all. Um, they had an escrow, they had an earnout. There was no seller's note, um, interestingly enough, but it did have those components in order to close the deal. So it was a large portion of the purchase price that was, you know, divided into an escrow and an earnout. So when you talk about an escrow, kind of describe that for those listening in. When a professional investor buyer comes to the table like this, why is the escrow there, and what do they? 
generally request or require? And in this particular case, what was the dollar amount that was put into escrow? Well, in this particular case, it was a large amount. They asked for a million dollars in escrow. And an escrow usually um, is set aside for any expenses that is unforeseen. It could be anything to do with tax returns, taxes that has to be paid, or any kind of possible liabilities that could come up after the transaction is closed. So they like to put that aside just in case. And if none of those come up, then it would be released at a agreed period, you know, date. And, um, you know, everybody would be happy. Um, but in this case, it wasn't so great because um, generally you have to think when, when a, a larger type of a buyer, like a private equity group, they step in, they are looking to minimize what they pay. So they ask for the most that they can take for an escrow and an earnout, and with lots of conditions for the earnout. In this case, they had an earnout as well. And how much was that for? That was two point five million, and that was to be paid out for the next thirty six months. And then they had lots of requirements to be paid out at certain dates. What that amount would be, if they reached a certain target of the the revenue, as reported by the financials that we presented to them during the whole. Uh, transaction. Well, history would say that earnouts are challenging under ideal circumstances if it isn't well structured and defined of what the criteria are. Do you recall what the criteria were? Was it top line revenue? Was it growth? Was it new customers? What was the metrics involved? Do you recall? I believe it was a combination of things. It made it kind of difficult. It was top line revenue as well as customer retention. So it was a combination of those metrics that they were trying to measure. And, um, you know, it it had certain dates that they were going to pay a certain amount if it reached that level and they would, you know, pay those amounts out. But the problem was with the uh, escrow. Um, They were looking for, I guess, a reason not to pay out the escrow. And uh, once that triggered, then the earnout was frozen too, because they got into a lawsuit over some minor issue of a very, very, um, you know, previous tax. uh, I believe it was a tax return, which was already uh, resolved, but um, they claimed that it was not disclosed, which had nothing to do with uh, the purchase price or any, you know, revenues, but they used that to bring the uh, lawsuit to the state where the PE group came from, which was outside of New York. And, um, you know, they wanted to wield their power to not pay the escrow and also give further pain to the seller to come after the money in a different state. So they tried to move the venue from New York to the state where they were based out of, but were they successful in doing that? No, they were not successful in moving the case over to where they came from. Uh, but it's still ongoing. After all these years, now they have to do it in uh, you know the local courts here, and many years of uh, attorney fees and headache and time spent and stress levels. It's it just was a very uh, it's a, it was a shame. And once that gets resolved, then I guess the earnout would have to be addressed as well. But I don't know where the, um, the earnout stands at this time. 
Well, what's your experience, Carol? I mean, you've been in this business a long time. And when you have a professional investor and private equity group and things of that nature, you know, they're always trying to leverage their return on investment by paying as little as possible. And, and sometimes as it appears to be in this situation, they use basically a technicality to withhold the releasing of funds out of escrow. And would you say it's fair to say that they were trying to use the fact that they were a private equity group with substantial financial resources to kind of scare the buyer and maybe to walk away and not fight them for that? Yes, that's. I believe that's exactly what happened. They assumed that the seller would not fight and walk away because they deemed that what he got at the closing table should be enough. And at the end of the day, the seller did fight just because out of principle, and he was able to. Um, and I believe sometimes if, you, if, if you're given enough period of time to look for some technicality, you'll find it, you'll find it. Uh, but in this case, I think the, the seller was more concentrated on getting his price that he was willing to to enter into the term of the escrow agreement and the earnout in order to get that price. Sometimes it's best to just take as much upfront as you can and not deal with that headache at the tail end because he certainly has to deal with it. Had he taken a lower price and not have to deal with the escrow, it it probably would have you know circumvented any of this. But if um, if any buyer is going to step in for a high price, they're always going to have some kind of uh, uh, you know an escrow or or some contingency or hold back on on that amount. So if they're going to be looking for it, they'll probably find something, some technicality. So what I hear you really saying is kind of a a mindset, I guess. If a seller is looking, and in this case, to get his ten million dollars and selling the business, he was for, pretty focused on that and wasn't as focused on the terms and conditions of the escrow. And that ended up coming back around to where he had to, you know, fight for for something that may not have been necessary if he had taken a lower price and not required as much uh, an escrow or no escrow. Is that what you're kind of saying? Is sometimes getting your price is not the most important thing? That's right. I agree with that. Um, the whole thing i think it's just try to get as much as uh you can up front take as little risk uh for the you know the the after the close and i would probably make sure that you have an attorney working for you that has gone through this experience already Uh, you have to assume first of all that you probably won't get paid that's how you have to think about it um, and protect yourself that way and mitigate that as, 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 you know, that amount as small as possible. So you're not exposing yourself to any kind of lawsuit later. Just take a lower price and, and make that amount smaller. So if you do lose, it's not so big of an amount. So you're really talking about a couple of different strategies here, I guess. You're talking about if you want to get your price, then you better darn well have a good attorney that drafts the, documents to protect yourself and that they're pretty airtight but you approach that with like you're not going to get that money but if uh if you are going to leave those amounts in escrow that you have bulletproof documents by an experienced attorney that's been down this road before or kind of the other strategy is don't take as much for your business take more 
cash or a lower price and not have to worry so much about uh, long-term payouts. And I think you're dealing with a professional investor anyway. They understand and have, they do these deals every day, multiple times a year. And so they're, they're pretty crafty. They're very crafty and, and they rely on, um, fatigue. So when you're going back and forth on the, uh, the purchase agreement and you've gone back and forth 50 times already, it becomes, they wear you down. That is, that is what they do. They like to wear you down. So the less you have to worry about later, I think is the better choice, especially with a really good attorney in place. Because um, you have to, you have to know that they're they're going to fight you to to pay you the rest. If they can find something, they will. So really, the big takeaway here: maybe not be so focused on price and more on the terms. And if you do take and leave large earnouts and escrow amounts, that you have those documents really nailed down. Yes. Yes, very important. Sage advice, Carol, I think uh, mm-hmm. can save a lot of those in our audience that are thinking about or in the middle of or soon will be in a deal transaction where these issues are going to come up to reflect back on this episode and remember that takeaway. So I think it's good advice. Well, let's move on to a, another transaction that you can share with us that had some insightful takeaways that our audience might be able to learn from. I'll tell you about a very pleasant one. Um, I had a, a under a million dollar transaction. It was also another commercial cleaning company that was quite far away from New York. I visited them once for the initial meeting and then everything was done very smoothly by phone, by email, um, with a, a, a buyer. And it, it all happened without any hiccups whatsoever. The, the seller got their price, uh, the buyer came in, everything was done remotely. They didn't even meet until later part of the deal. And um, it was very pleasant and everybody walked away very happy and they were very happy that I was able to um, you know, do the transaction with them. And um, those are the types of deals that I really like when everybody's very satisfied with the outcome. What were the key elements or components that made the deal go that smoothly? Was it the size of the deal? Was it the personalities involved? Was it the type of business? What was the, the magic formula here? I think the, the formula to that is, first of all, the buyers were cash because the deal was smaller. So they didn't have to deal with the third party lender. That was number one. Number two, the sellers were very reasonable. They were not, you know, looking for an exorbitant amount. They were very fair with the asking price. When we discussed it, they were just fine with like, let's just ask for fairness. And um, they did not, you know, flow in a lot of their personal expenses through the business. They were a partnership. They were, they, they were good friends for a long period of time. And they really appreciated running the company together. And the only thing that they really took were a draw from for each of their the, the partners. And uh, they took insurance expense, health insurance expense for each of the partners. But basically, that was it. It was a very simple um, balance sheet and profit and loss and tax returns that from the get-go, the, the, it was so simple that the buyers looked at it, it was like, there was nothing to it. 
So it already, from the beginning, created trust. Well, that word trust, you mentioned in one of the first transaction that we talked about where there's all the inventory involved. Uh, there was a lack of trust there because of the state or the condition of the financial records and inventory and things of that nature bred sort of suspicion and the lack of trust. But in this situation, because the records were clean, there was very little things going on in the business that you would normally see in a smaller type of business where the entrepreneur that's running the business often takes liberties and runs all sorts of expenses through the business. None of that was going on. And so, you know, everything tied off, you know, the tax returns match the, I assume, not putting words in your mouth here, but I assume the tax returns match the financial statements and, and, uh, you know, everything looked fair, everything tied off and fair and transparent disclosure and hence a big degree of trust. Yes. And, uh, you know, that's just both sides were very, uh, you know, very nice people. They liked each other from the get go because of the trust created. So it was a very easy, quick, smooth transition. And that was, uh, that was a really great deal to be involved in. Well, I suppose that's how all your deals are, you know, just, <laughs> just, just smooth, right? Just go from beginning to end with no problems. Oh, boy, I wish. If only, if only. <laughs> uh, I would probably say uh, most of the time there's always hiccups here and there to, to iron out. But yeah, uh, when it is smooth, it just makes me very happy. Everybody too. So yeah, it's, it's usually the opposite. <laughs> In this particular situation, if you name a couple of takeaways of being able to craft this type of situation when our audience is, you know, at some point in time going to be selling their business, uh, what, what are a couple of things they could do to build up that level of trust, kind of plan to be able to enhance that trust that could be created? Well, I would probably say if you already have very clean uh, books and records and uh, financials, you know, for the last few years, then then the, it, you're already there almost. But if you don't, then you can certainly take the next year or two to make sure that everything is represented. Um, same profit and loss, same tax returns, they should match and make sure that you're actually getting yourself ready for the sale because the, the, the more detailed and the more um, concise all of your records are, that's really more than half the battle. Now, of course, you're going to have to deal with operational um, questions as well. But if you can at least clean the, up your financials or if you already have them, then you're in good shape. Well, good advice. Well, let's uh, move on to chatting a little bit about another transaction here. Do you have a transaction that might be a little bit where there are some real challenges to certain components of the business? Yes, um, I actually did a, uh, a transaction for a specialty shade manufacturing business. It was very light manufacturing, but nevertheless, it was a niche manufacturing business. And um, the problem with them, we had a very good buyer. He was also a cash buyer. But the problem was that, um, you know, it started at a much higher price. And uh, because they were elderly, they just really wanted to retire. And it took 18 months to sell. But during that time, the sales started declining. Was that because of competitive pressures or what were the drivers of sales falling off? 
It was um, the sellers took their foot off the pedal, I guess, off the gas pedal. They just wanted to retire and they just relied that it will be sold so they don't have to continue the revenue, you know, the driving of the revenues um, during those months. So when when they started feeling like, okay, we're ready to sell, they, they definitely um, started getting a little bit lower and lower in the revenues and um, they let go of, um, I guess, one person because the revenues were going lower. So it was a little bit of that downward cycle. And as I was trying to represent the business for sale every month, it was getting a little bit lower, lower, lower. And not to mention, there were a lot of interest in the business. But um, when buyers came aboard and started looking into it, uh, what we found was that the customer concentration was more than 70%, I'd probably say 65, 70% was uh, attributed to two customers, long-term customers, but there were uh, two customers made up about 65, 75% of the revenue. So why, why is that such a big deal for a buyer? Give us the insight that when a buyer comes to the table like that and they like the business, they're motivated to take a serious look at the business. Uh, and they see something like this. As you said, two customers held between 65 and 70% of all revenue. Why does that freak out a buyer so much? Because they look at that as a high risk. And uh, they assume that, especially if it was over a long period of time that they've been there, they are coming to this company to buy the specialty shades because of the relationship that th- that was created over these number of years. And that relationship will be gone. So a buyer coming in, they assume that they will now go to the second relationship, somebody else who's doing this rather than them, because there would be no loyalty remaining once um, the original seller is retired. So that presented a high risk in, in any buyer's eyes to take on. Why would they step in there at that price and possibly in hope and pray that they will stay with them. So a lot of them um, chose to look at other businesses. And during that time, because of that, we had to lower the price and then lower the price some more. And then it went lower because of the declining revenues. So by the time we found that buyer who was very enthusiastic at that lower price, um, he was very happy about it. But it, it came at a price because of the customer risk, 70% going to two customers rather than a variety, like hundreds of customers and spreading out that sale. Because if you lose one out of hundred, it should not matter. But if you lose one out of five, it matters. Well, you have really two dynamics, significant dynamics going on here. As I view the transaction, as you're explaining it, you have the factor of time. You said it took 18 months and you have every month the revenue is going down. So the enterprise value of the business is decreasing by the month. And you have this other dynamic of the high risk associated with the high customer concentration. And so from the starting point of where what they wanted to get for the business and over the period of months that elapsed before they actually closed the deal, along with this high customer concentration, what was the percentage decrease in the value of the business over that period of time? Oh, more than 50%, uh, probably about 60%. 
So it, it sold for 40% of the original ask price. And it was unfortunate. It was like chasing a ball down the hill and trying to make it stop. Um, and it would accelerate because of the customer risk. So by the time we came to a halt and, and agreed, um, yes, we did sell it for less than 50% of the ask price originally. A very unfortunate but, um, you know, in the end, the sellers were just glad to have sold it. They thought maybe they might have to close it down, but they were glad that uh, they found a buyer who was very enthusiastic and the buyer was very happy. So it, it worked out in the end, but I wish that it could have been sold at the price, original price. They certainly deserved it, but, um, you know, the customer concentration did hurt. If we look and do a post-mortem, on this transaction, I guess the advice to the audience would be what? You know, if you have higher customer concentration and you know you're going to be selling the business, what would you tell a buyer to do in anticipation, knowing that if you have this high of a customer concentration, a buyer is going to freak out for those reasons that you outlined, which are valid reasons. He's making an assumption that those customers are loyal to the owner or the person that's running the business. Uh, and that when he steps in, that loyalty may disappear and they may walk out the door. That's a valid concern. So what advice would you give someone that has that type of situation in their own business right now? If you can, and I don't know if it's always possible, but if you can, just try to minimize that concentration. So if you have two great customers and, and you're not paying attention for to the other 35%, I would probably say... Pay attention to those 35%. Give them more than what you're giving them now to grow that business with that relationship and then add others to it so that overall you're decreasing that percentage of that customer, those two customers that you have a great bond with because you know no buyer would want to step into that situation because you, you have that relationship, but they probably won't. So try to spread it out. Pay attention and give the same kind of service, maybe even more, so that you can sort of increase, you know, um, the other 35% up to maybe 50, 60%. Get it ready before you actually go out there, because that is definitely going to be a huge problem for any buyer. Well, I realize these particular buyers are kind of probably burned out and they really wanted to move on and enjoy their retirement years, but they, you just cannot take your foot off the gas. I mean, they lost 50%, you know, millions of dollars of value dissipated into thin air because of burnout and this customer concentration of issue. And if some forethought had been given to this and a little bit of planning, it would have been a whole different story and a whole different ending could have been written as they exited the business. Yeah. Right. And you know what? The timing of the exit is so important as well. I would say sell it when you're really good. You know, don't wait until the end when you're really tired. Sell it so that you could enjoy. Maybe you do another business. Maybe you can, you know, travel more. Do it when you're actually doing really well. And you know that you're going to be looking at that in a few years. I would probably explore, you know, at the time where you're really happy with where your business is and the revenues and at least see the possibility of what type of uh, a sale price you can have before you get to the point of being burnt out before you get to the point of, okay, now I want to retire before 
your family member might get sick, you know, just do it before you think you're ready to do it. At least explore that option. Yeah, good insight. Well, while we wrap up with one last transaction, since we're in the middle of COVID and this episode is being recorded during COVID pandemic that we're all dealing with right now, uh, do you have any deals that you've actually closed during this tenuous situation out there in the economy? Yes. Um, I just recently closed um, a transaction just a little, a little less than a month, I guess it's been. So uh, that took about a year. It was a large transaction too. And um, it took about 11 months to close. And we did go through COVID. It was a security business that serviced, um, you know, large institutions with contracts. So it was a very attractive business for, let's say, a private equity group or a search fund or a family office to get into because it was recurring revenue and it was based on contract. So you're talking like security systems, right? Like cameras and entry and exit systems and panic buttons and all those type of things that are associated with security. That's the type of business we're talking about? Yes, that protects, you know, uh, commercial institutions and businesses. So yes, they, um, they did a really good job of providing great service and great uh, equipment and, and install installation and also being there to make sure that if it ever broke down, you know, these, these companies or institutions always need them to be working. So they had their crew there at all times to make sure that everything went smoothly. So because they're there all the time, they're also being paid by the hour at union wages. So this type of a transaction really attracts larger uh, groups of buyers, mainly private equity or search fund or family office. So let's talk a little bit about that. Give a definition to what a search fund really is and, and how they work. Okay, so um, a search fund basically was, I believe it was, I'm going to say invented or started by a professor in one of the business schools. I think it must be at least 20 years by now. But um, he, he thought, well, you know, we have these really bright young individuals coming out of a business school, but then we also have... So you're talking MBA types, right? Yes, MBAs. And a lot of them all also... Um, they could be actually older people, not older, but they're, they're not MBAs. They probably do have MBAs as well, but people who are coming out of the military, such as Navy SEALs, the special special ops, um, you know, groups that are very capable of being, you know, being a leader. So um, I, I believe the program was created to match uh, these young individuals who came out of elite business schools with business owners who are exiting and an investor would basically come in, pay these uh, search funders uh, a salary and give them a, a period of time, usually two years. They'll pay them a salary. They are paid to go search for a company to acquire and the investors would chip in and put the put basically either the whole, usually not the whole amount, but at least for the down payment and they would, you know, um, make up the rest with a third-party finance financing lending institution. So, just to recap, what you've said here is that, uh, you know, the the whole concept of search fund is to have someone that is young and aggressive and ambitious, and they go out and actually search 
and try to identify a good business opportunity to acquire. And they do that either with being paid by a search fund, a salary for a period of time, or perhaps not a salary, but they bring those investment opportunities to make an acquisition to an investment group or fund. Right. And then after the acquisition, that searcher would be placed in the operational manager role. They would be the COO or whatever title they have to operate the business going forward. So, you know, I guess it's, 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 it works for the searcher, it works for the investor, as long as you can find the right opportunities to acquire. And, but they leave it up to the searcher to make sure that they identify it. They go through the due diligence, make sure they get all the financials together and present it to the investor to see if they would have interest in acquiring it. And your experience with search funds, does it generally culminate in a, a deal or are there a lot of trial balloons that never cl- never close? I would say that um, it's, it's difficult because um, it's already a lot of work that you have to do with the searcher in order for them to put together a package for their investors to look at. So yes, it, we do close with uh, search funders, but there are a lot more searchers out there looking for the business than what there is to be acquired. So I get, I get approached by so many search fund people all the time. For larger businesses, generally they they are looking at an EBITDA of at least a 1.5 million or higher. So, what would be the cautionary advice for business owners out there that may be approached by, you know, a search fund? What advice would you give to someone that is going to be dealing with a searcher? Well, my you know, over the years of uh, dealing with uh, various groups, I would probably say just because they say that they're back doesn't mean that they actually have a backer who's committed. So what I look for is who are your investors and I need to have some sort of a commitment letter uh, signed by the investors. So I I assume that you're uh, inferring that some search funds or people that are doing the searches actually don't have commitments. They just hope they get a commitment if they bring a good deal and others actually do have firm commitments. That's right. There's a big difference there. So in the security business, when I first went out looking for a buyer, the first person who who really who we got into an LOI with, letter of intent with, was an unfunded searcher. So what what happened was, I assumed that he was a, a funded searcher with investors in place. But once we accepted the LOI, he then wanted to market and syndicate, um, you know, for investors to come on board for the deal that I put out there and, and agreed to give him the letter of intent with the seller. So basically what he was doing was um, something beyond my control, looking for investors to come in on the deal and sending them his non-disclosure agreements that I would not know who they would be. And then I would lose control of the, the you know, the privacy of the, the, the seller's company. And um, it just was just a mess. So I would probably say the caution is make sure you know that they're well-funded and who those, you know, investors are and how much they have to actually put down and what the, the remainder, what bank you're going to um, utilize. And you probably would want to make sure that you know that bank and you have a relationship as well. 
So as we talk about this security company that, that was marketed toward the height of the COVID crisis that we're going through, that deal was purchased and by whom? And how did it come together at the end? Well, I would probably say that um, it, it was, um, you know, a searcher, but he wasn't paid, but he did have backing. He went to a very good uh, Ivy League a business school. And, um, you know, I did have the relationship as well with the, the lender. So while it took a, a long time to close a deal, it, because it was a larger deal, it, um, it really paid off by knowing um, who the investors were, how much they were going to put down, and as well as the lender themselves, I had a relationship with. So if you know all of that, all the ingredients and know the people involved in the deal, it's going to, uh, you know, probably pay off in terms of closing it more smoothly and not having any surprises in there. The first one was definitely a deal breaker because um, I didn't realize that he was going to go shop around for investors after we committed. So we let that one go. So really, in this in this particular transaction, you had a, a searcher that had no investors lined up. He was just doing his own kind of homework and packaging up a, an offering basically to go find investors. And that did not work out. And then you had a searcher that had his investors and you had the lender in place and you controlled a lot of different components of the transaction and you were able to successfully close that transaction, a fairly good sized transaction with the security company that had recurring revenue and looked like really a great business for, for everyone. It was a great business. And, uh, you know, going back to the other uh, first scenario, you have to, I mean, I definitely had to ask why a searcher did not have a committed investor. You know, there's a lot of investors, they don't have to do anything other than letting this very smart person and capable person to go look out, look for good deals. But um, that just, you know, kind of shows you, well, maybe he doesn't have those good relationships or whatever it was, it just did not bode well to move forward with that person. Well, the big takeaway here, I guess, if I could put words into your mouth here, is that uh, if you happen to be approached by a search fund or someone representing a search fund, that you really understand the backing and the relationships they have in place, if they're real. And if they are, you may want to proceed, you know, in talking to them. But if they aren't, it may be a waste of your time. I guess that's a big picture overview of an advice given by you to people that may be approached by a search fund. Yes, I, I uh, well put. I definitely think uh, that is that is a very key factor in uh, working with search funds. Well, there certainly are a lot of different types of ways to sell a business, as we all know. But this one we haven't talked about recently here on the podcast. And I think and I appreciate you bringing that transaction so that we could chat a little bit about it uh, and our audience can you know, take notes and uh, just know that there's a lot of different types of buyers out there and each one of them have their advantages and disadvantages. Well, Carol, it's been great talking to you here today. I think you've certainly given our audience a lot to think about and good advice and some of the takeaways that we chatted here about today. And if someone wanted to reach out and get a hold of you, how would be best to contact you? Um, the best way would be to uh, email me. My um, work email is cshin, S-H-I-N, at inbargroup.com. 
S-H-I-N-B-A-R. Well, that's simple enough. Uh, C for Carol Shin at inbargroup.com. Yes. All right. Well, this has been fantastic. Appreciate your time, Carol. And for those of you that listen to the podcast on a regular basis, we'll see you on our next episode. Thank you so much, Marv. Thanks for listening to the Business Exit Stories podcast. For more information or to reach out to today's guest, visit www.businessexitstories.com for more details. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast from your favorite podcasting platforms. And remember, maximizing business value at the time of exit doesn't happen magically. It takes planning.